Today on Onward to Victory, a second incredibly exciting installment of Gridiron Groundbreakers of the Fighting Irish. Today, you're going to hear about the completely unheralded Rockney era star Tommy Yar. Yar was tougher than old shoe leather and perhaps the perfect prototype of a Rockney player. But that's actually not what makes him most special. Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. fans and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter and yes sir, I am your host. Welcome to episode 43 and thank you so much for electing to take some time to join me here today for some more fighting Irish lore. In 2021 alone, the show has had listeners from 41 states and nine different countries, a unifying sign of the passionate Irish fan base. And again, I cannot thank you enough for spending a little bit of time here with me today. And as a quick friendly reminder, please like or subscribe to the show, however it is that you are listening. That way you can be alerted anytime a new episode is released. And just as some other quick show reminders, a slew of new merch is available, including t-shirts and coffee mugs. If you'd like to learn more about how to acquire the show merch, head over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Onward to Victory Podcast, or email me at Onward to Victory Podcast at gmail.com. I'll send you a catalog of sorts. The shirts are really sharp, and I will be posting a photograph of myself wearing one of them if you want to see see one before you buy one. They are only 20 bucks each, which includes both shipping and taxes. So the proceeds will not only benefit the show, but also a soon-to-be-named nonprofit organization. So someone actually asked me recently, why would, why would you do coffee mugs? I realize this may have been a bit of a Freudian slip, as I probably drink more coffee than any two people you know. But however, go over to the page. They're really, really neat. So check them out. Or you can consider becoming a consensus All-American, the good folks who donate to the show to keep it ad-free and growing. So head over to paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash onward to victory for ongoing monthly donations. Any amount is incredibly appreciated. Speaking of, a heartfelt thank you to all the Consensus All-Americans, both past and present. And this episode is sponsored by my pal, Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey. And just as another quick reminder, because, well, if you're not new around here, I try to keep the glass proverbially half full. And if you are new around here, uh, well, I like to keep the glass proverbially half full. Just to uh, give you a quick reminder, our favorite lads of the gridiron, the Fighting Irish, over the past four years between 2017 and 2020 have lost to a total of six college football programs. The list is Clemson, Georgia, Alabama, Michigan, Miami, and Stanford. 
And during that same span, Notre Dame has logged 43 victories, including three victories over teams that defeated them, like Clemson, Michigan, and Stanford. So I gotta say, not half bad. But uh, now looking at the previous four years to that, 2013 through 2016, the program lost to 16 different teams, and not of the blue-blooded variety either. During this span, the program, which logged a 31-20 and record, lost to programs such as Duke, Northwestern, North Carolina State, Navy, Arizona State, Stanford three times, the Pukes at USC twice. Anyway, I guess the point of this exercise is to shine a light on what has been a very successful run and a very prosperous era of Notre Dame football, and the fact that, again, we have been playing some very, very good game here the last couple seasons. All right, so episode 43, I suppose, serves as part two of a series that began production in February called Gridiron Groundbreakers of the Fighting Irish. Part one, back in episode 39, was about Wayne Edmonds, who was not only a very good lineman for Notre Dame on some very memorable teams in the early 1950s, but he was also the first African-American to win a monogram or an athletic letter from the Notre Dame football team. A trailblazer in any sense. And it was not a dramatic free experience. So a shameless plug, it's a very strong episode. So go give it a listen if you'd like right after this. All right. So buckle in because episode 43 is going to be about another trailblazer, about Tommy Yar, who played center for Notre Dame from 1928 to 1931. He will be forever known as Knut Rockne's final center, for he was holding down the position when Rockne was killed in a plane crash in 1931. And he was out standing. He served as team captain his senior year, so he was not only Rockney's final center, but he was also Coach Hunk Anderson's first captain, I suppose. But he was also the first player of Native American descent to play football at Notre Dame. Sadly, he, at least this is my humble opinion anyway, is long forgotten among the rich and deep annals of fighting Irish football history. So I say let's begin to reclaim that today. Just so I'm clear, since genealogy can be incredibly complicated, there may have been others with trace native ancestry at Notre Dame before, and even possibly on the football team. Because, as I mentioned, genealogy can be very complicated. But Yar is tabbed as the first Native American to play football at Notre Dame because he grew up in a distinctly Native household. His mother and grandmother spoke their native language of Snohomish at home. His grandmother, Boda Strand, was a full-blooded Native and was a respected basket maker among the Snohomish. And his mother, Josephine Strand Yar, actually provided anthropologists with invaluable information about native songs, language, and West Coast native life to researchers at that time again. So very, very cool. But what is interesting is how Tommy and his biracial composition actually aided him at Notre Dame. So let's dig in a little bit here. So Thomas Cornelius Yar was born on December 4th, 1908 in Chimicum, Washington, near the small town of Debob, to mother, 
the aforementioned Josephine Strand Yar, again the daughter of a full-blooded Snohomish native, and Thomas Yar, who was an Irish immigrant. Imagine that. Tommy was the fifth of six children with four sisters and an older brother. Chimicum is located in Jefferson County in Washington State. Around the time of Yar's birth, the population for the entire county was just under 9,000. Chimicum was and still is an unincorporated community on the Olympic Peninsula. The small town is a little over an hour's drive in the modern day anyways, to Tacoma, Washington. So sadly, his mother, Josephine, died very suddenly of a heart attack in 1924 at age 52, when Tommy was just a teenager. And so his father would actually raise him. Much of Tommy's upbringing was spent on his family's dairy farm, where he worked endless hours to provide, again, for his family. The physical labor on the farm allowed Tommy to fill in his 5 foot 11 inch frame with some bulk and sinew. And by his senior year, he tipped the scales at 185 pounds, which he put to good use while competing in football, baseball, and basketball at Chimicum High School. By the time he graduated in 1928, he was being heavily recruited for many West Coast College's football teams. And he would have most certainly stayed on the West Coast, if not for an innovation by famed Notre Dame football coach, Knute Rockney. An area where Rockney absolutely lapped the competition at this time was having a more cohesive nationwide recruiting plan. So how would he accomplish this? He regularly communicated with his former players, coaches, other athletes, and eager program boosters stationed all over the country. And they would tip him off as far as prospects in their respected areas. Now, this sounds very simple. I know. But at this time, very few coaches were tapping into their alumni bases in this manner. So yes, chalk this up to yet another innovation for the great Coach Rockney. So when Rockney picks up the phone or composes a telegram, whatever it was, to former Irish track standout Maury Starrett, who, by some coincidence, was living in Port Townsend, a mere 10 miles from Chimicum, to ask him about local standouts, Starrett offered Yar's name. Not only did Starrett bring up Yar to Rockney, but he also offered to sponsor his tuition. After learning more about Yar, a tough-nosed, gritty, technically sound center, Rockney began recruiting the son of the Snohomish Indian and Irish immigrant. In 1928, Rockney was a nationally famous figure in college football. Needless to say, for a certain Tommy Yar, for whom football was going to play a heavy role in his college decision-making process, he rebuffed all his other offers and leapt at the opportunity to play for Rockney, even though South Bend was over 2,200 miles away from Chimicum. When Yar arrived on campus in 1928, he quickly made his way out to the football practice field, where he was penciled fairly deep down the depth chart at center. Either way, Yar's presence in the program was significant. This was again still over two decades before Wayne Edmonds arrived on campus. 
Frankly, Yar didn't necessarily fit into the team's ethnic profile, but given his part Irish patronage, no one really kicked much of a fuss up over it. Tommy quickly became best friends with sophomore tackle and future Notre Dame coaching great Frank Leahy. So just so you can enjoy it, the next time you're on campus, Yar, like a number of other subjects we have covered on the show, lived in Soren Hall. His intended major was physical education, and he made it known that he wanted to pursue a career in coaching when his college playing days were over. Though Yar didn't see the varsity field in 1928, he played in a few contests his sophomore year in 1929. At this time, Notre Dame actually had one of the very best centers in the nation named Tim Moynihan holding down the position. So in 1929, Notre Dame, by way of a 9-0 record, laid claim to a national championship. Again, Yar's sophomore year. This was, of course, during the season where Notre Dame Stadium was being built, so the team actually played nine road games in a sense, since their, quote, home games were played in Soldier Field in Chicago, Illinois, which is a very interesting season. But anyway, so 1929, Tommy's sophomore year, team wins a national championship. Unfortunately, Yar came across many Notre Dame's purview that year for the first time, when he snapped the ball over a running back's head during the Northwestern game, which was recovered by Northwestern for a touchdown. Even though the game was won by Notre Dame handily, it was personally mortifying for Yar, and he actually felt like he had blown his chance to play ever again. But as the 1929 Football Review penned, quote, his well-balanced proportions of brain and brawn coupled with his natural and developed ability, should put him on with the first string for the next two years. End quote. So even with the public error, so to speak, a later football review exclaimed that, quote, seldom does Rockney misjudge a player, or anyone else for that matter, and he knew that Tommy Yar had the stuff that makes for greatness. End quote. And, you know, that's exactly what happened. In 1930, Moynihan had moved on, and Yar entered the 1930 season as the bona fide starting center. The 1930 team is one of the best Notre Dame teams as far as I'm concerned. At least, if not anything else, one of my favorites. We've actually touched on this team a bit in past episodes, most notably the episode about starting fullback and absolute show hero, Jumping Joe Savoldi who of course scored the first Notre Dame touchdown in the brand new Notre Dame Stadium. So I want you to take that, put it in your back pocket, and save it for when that question comes up at trivia night at your local watering hole. You got this. But anyways, he was a wonderful human being who just lived one hell of a life. So check out the episode on Jumping Joe if you get a chance. But the 1930 team was actually pretty controversial during the time, and particularly among the Notre Dame faithful and the press corps covering the team. So if at this time, the vast majority of Notre Dame students, ergo members of the football team, were Catholic, mostly from, surprise, surprise, Irish in addition to German backgrounds. Now, despite the prowess of the 1930 team, they were from 
many different backgrounds and ethnicities, which actually rubbed a lot of Irish fans the wrong way. For instance, quarterback Frankie Caradeo and fullback Savaldi were Italian. They just kind of sound Italian, don't they? Halfbacks Marty Brill and Marchie Schwartz were Jewish. And of course, center Tommy Yar was of native descent. So, no, and I'm not actually blowing smoke up your backsides here. According to Murray Sperber's Shake Down the Thunder, which is still a leading source of information and insights of the history of Notre Dame football at this time, he shares a quote from a Notre Dame alum of the time. Quote, This backfield should be more famous than the Four Horsemen. Even Rock said they were better. But the press would only go so far with a fighting Irish backfield consisting of two wops and two hebes. Also, the Italian and Jewish gangsters of New York and Chicago loved them, and this embarrassed the priests, end quote. Even Yar caught some interesting descriptions by the local press, in a profile by the South Bend News Times, and trying to make sense of his native and Irish identity, well, first they wrote that Yar was in fact Cherokee, which of course he was Snohomish, but it was written that Yar, quote, had plenty of fight, courage, and the ability to make friends. But it seemed that there was something else, a more impelling power, behind him. The write-up continues. Sure it was. He possessed the wit of an Irishman. An Irishman, yes. For it was soon discovered that Mr. Yar, father of the now famous Tommy, was born and raised in Dublin, Ireland. End quote. So obviously it's fairly clear that the writer is establishing and employing a racial hierarchy of some kind. As historian William Bauer wrote, quote, Yar's Irish heritage provided intellect and cleverness, and his native ancestry supplied untamed bravery. But he praises Yar for his combination of brain and brawn and natural and developed ability. So despite employing the hierarchy, Bauer notes that the article does not, quote, disparage Yar because of his dual heritages, but actually accentuates them instead. Sorry, I just think this is all very, very interesting. But so in this sense, the 1930 edition of the Irish were unlike any other squad in Notre Dame football history. And they were really damn good. During the first game at the brand new Notre Dame Stadium, a 20-14 to victory over Southern Methodist University. Again, the game where the first Irish touchdown was scored by Joe Civoldi, SMU unleashed an unexpected passing attack in the fourth quarter trying to get back into the game. The 5'11", 195-pound Tommy Yar, lining up in something of a rover position, intercepted not one, not two, but three passes in the final minutes of the game in addition to, of course, playing center. Yar started every game at center for the season, and the team ran their record to a perfect 10-0 and was punctuated by the final two games of the season. A 7-6 win over rival Army, which was witnessed at the time by an astounding 100,000 spectators. And, of course, a 27-0 drubbing of the pukes of Southern California. In what would be Coach Knut Rockney's last season, the Irish claimed another national championship. In January 1931, in a very close vote, 
Tommy Yar was named captain of the football team for the upcoming 1931 season. He reputedly beat out tackle Al Culver and halfback Marchie Schwartz in a very close vote. So how about it? Yar is named captain. Yet another first for a Native American in the football program. Later in the Football Review magazine, he said that, quote, I am glad of this opportunity to thank the members of the 1931 team for their confidence in me in making me captain and for the wonderful spirit of cooperation they showed, end quote. His senior season would look much, much different than his first three seasons in the program. It was just 115 days after the final game of the 1930 season that the famed Coach Rockney was tragically killed in a plane crash on March 31, 1931. Yar, as well as a host of other current Irish players, served as pallbearers at Rockney's funeral. Now I'll tell you this much. We normally view history as this neat, left-to-right, 25,000 feet in the sky timeline. Sometimes the study of history often gets a little bit warped because, well, we have the benefit of knowing exactly what's going to happen next. How an attitude can shape a circumstance which influences an event, which then causes an effect. So naturally, when we look at history, it can be very difficult to put our shoes on the ground, so to speak. And I know some of you have read Jeff Harrell's Rockney of Ages. That book does as good a job as any I have read of really taking the temperature on Notre Dame's campus after this seismic and tragic event happened. I mean, when you think about it, Rock had arrived on campus as a student in 1910 when he was 22 years old. The Norwegian transplant had spent nearly half his life at Notre Dame. For those on campus, it was probably legitimately frightening thinking about how their close-knit community would survive without Rock in it. How would the football program survive? Think about it this way. Hunk Anderson, who, name you might have heard, aside from the fact that he was a, I mean, he's a former Notre Dame head football coach, he was also a very close friend of the late George Gipp, which is actually saying something, because Gipp didn't have a lot of friends, as we know. But... He was an assistant coach under Rockney, and then he, after Rockney's death, assumed head coaching duties. So the head coach before Rock was a gentleman named Jesse Harper, and the two, Harper and Rock, were really good friends. Harper, because he happened to live somewhat nearby Rockney's plane crash site, was actually called in to identify Rockney's body in what is just a really interesting twist. And he actually accompanied Rockney's body back to South Bend for burial. And the officials at Notre Dame would not let him leave unless he accepted a job as the athletic director, which was Rockney's old position in addition to being the head football coach. I just think it makes for a very interesting time in Notre Dame history. And I just simply can't imagine the void that existed at this time. And it's, again, something that we know time marches on and Notre Dame remains very successful. But again, put yourself in that position for a moment. 
And just think about how Tommy Yar, his mates, the entire Notre Dame campus, and really college football. I mean, talk about, again, just a seismic event. So it was Tommy Yar who was destined to lead the first team as captain without Rockney's physical presence in two decades. But again, his emotional and spiritual presence was certainly felt. But unfortunately, Yar's senior season was a bit of a disappointment for the Irish faithful and undoubtedly the Irish themselves. The team carried a 20-game winning streak into their Week 2 contest with Northwestern. Despite having one hand in a cast because he had broken it the day before in tackling drills and a finger on his other hand cut down to the bone, Yar played flawlessly in the game, recovering a fumble, intercepting a pass, in addition to playing a bruising brand of center that he was known nationwide for. However, the game ended in a 0-0 tie, thus breaking the winning streak. After running their record to 6-0-1, they lost their final two games of the season against bitter rivals Army and those pukes from USC. So they'd finish with a 6-2-1 record. Again, good for many schools across the country, yes, but not for the one based in South Bend, Indiana. However, Yar was named a consensus All-American for his efforts after the 1931 season. The Notre Dame Review penned after the season that, quote, they don't make men like Tommy every day. Let him know Notre Dame appreciates him and loves him. He won't be forgotten as long as people meet to talk football and to reminisce, end quote. In February of 1932, Tommy married a woman named Rosemary Killen, who was a Chicago native. And wouldn't you know it, according to a 1941 issue of the South Bend Tribune, Frank Leahy stood next to him as his best man during the proceedings. Yar served as an assistant coach for the Irish under Hunk Anderson during the 1932 season, a season which saw the team finish a 7-2 record. In August of 1933, it was announced that Yar had signed with the Chicago Cardinals of the National Football League. So yes, an early NFL franchise. However, it was a tough season for Yar and the Cardinals. They logged a 1-9-1 record. Yar's playing time actually fluctuated a bit since he was sharing the center position once again with former Irish teammate Tim Moynihan. So how about that? Just another interesting twist in history. But after that point, Yar had enough of playing. And he actually then signed on to coach the John Carroll University football team, which he did in 1934 and 1935. John Carroll, just in case anyone is otherwise unaware, is located in Cleveland, Ohio. Keep in mind, at this point, Yar wouldn't even turn 26 until his first season as head coach. So you have a 25-year-old collegiate head coach. I know college football was different then in the mid-1930s, but yes, folks, that was still a very young football coach. This probably also makes him one of the earliest Native American college football coaches. While that is a bit of a broad assumption, I'm sure that has to be in the realm of fact. I know Jim Thorpe coached a lot of pro teams, but I believe he may have spent a season as a coach at IU, 
Perhaps my buddy Jeff Harrell can correct me on that. But regardless, it can be safely assumed that Yar was still among the first. After the 1935 season, he left John Carroll and settled in Chicago and worked for a loan company rising to the role of manager. He and Rosemary would eventually have three small children. He probably beamed with pride during the 1941 Notre Dame football season. Well, first the team posted an 8-0-1 record, but it was his good pal, Frank Leahy, who was now the head coach. Though the team didn't bring home a national championship that year, they did finish number three in the final polls. He really wouldn't have much time to celebrate, though. On Christmas Eve, 1941, while working in his office at the loan company, Tommy Yar suffered a fatal heart attack. He was only 33 years old. Sadly, he prematurely passed the same way his mother had when he was just a young boy, 33 years old. According to the Chicago Tribune, he had actually, in the previous 12 months, had already suffered two heart attacks. His children were ages six, four, and three months when their dad died. What a terrible shame. Rosemary would outlive her husband by 49 years. She passed away in 1990. It's for stories like Tommy Yar that I do this podcast, and I think why some folks may even enjoy it. Players who were not only great on the gridiron and the storied history of Notre Dame football, but great people who lived lives of wonderful meaning, such as Yar and the significance of his native background, who may have been forgotten as the pages of time have turned. Let's see if we can change that, at least for a certain Thomas Cornelius Yar. We will be right back. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed that little piece of Irish lore about the great Tommy Yar, part two of our Gridiron Groundbreakers of the Fighting Irish, episode 43. So as I'm looking over my show notes here, I realized I forgot to mention something kind of important. It was in February of 1987, which by the way, a great year, the year I was born actually, so actually about three months before I was born. Uh, Yar was named to the College Football Hall of Fame, which certainly puts him in some very elite company. Now, of course, in order to be elected or inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame, you must have been a first-team All-American, which, of course, excludes a lot of really great players throughout college football history. And we had this discussion during the Joe Montana episode last year, where especially when the 
museum was in South Bend. Joe Montana had a number of artifacts in it, but he himself is not a member of the College Football Hall of Fame, and that is because he was never named a first-team All-American. However, Tommy Yar was, and so he was inducted in 1987, so about 46 years after his death. But hey, never too late to recognize a all-time great. So just quickly, for sources and citing and all of that, if you are interested in learning more about Tommy Yar, the bulk of the information that I used for this particular episode, of course, came from the Notre Dame Football Review, which those are all online. Uh, if you're ever interested in perusing them, they're incredibly interesting and they're really easy to find on Notre Dame's website. So you can see the football reviews as well as the school newspaper, and and you know that's pretty primarily what I use for this show. However, a gentleman by the name of C. Richard King wrote perhaps the most substantive account of Tommy's life in his book that is called Native Athletes in Sport and Society. So it was published back in 2005. So if you're just interested in learning a little bit more, seeing a little bit more of where I got this information from, feel free to visit the Notre Dame Digital Archives or the Digital Collection as well as Native Athletes in Sport and Society by C. Richard King. Thank you all for joining me today. This has been a great episode. It was incredibly rewarding, and it was a lot of fun to put together. This is a guy that I had no idea or very little idea existed, much less kind of the significance of his presence in the Notre Dame football program. So I do want to thank all of you for electing to take some time to join me today, and hopefully that was enlightening, compelling, interesting, all the above. So again, don't forget, head over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Onward to Victory podcast. I'm actually doing something this week profiling each and every one of Notre Dame's nine NFL draft picks. So jump over to the Facebook page, like and follow. That's where all the most of the show's updates are funneled through. But again, this week, if you're a Cleveland Browns fan like myself, you're kind of riding on cloud nine because... None other than Jeremiah Usukoromoa, our Butkus Award-winning linebacker, was selected by the Cleveland Browns, second round, number 52 overall. Anyways, just wanted to throw that one out there. I know we got some other Cleveland Browns fans uh, who listen, so I know we're all very, very elated over that. But there was nine Notre Dame players selected in the 2021 draft, which is the most uh, of any draft during the Brian Kelly era and actually just trailed Ohio State and Alabama by one pick each. So Notre Dame actually had more draft picks than everybody in the country with the exception of those two schools. So going to miss a lot of those guys. But hey, uh, we just had the spring game over this past weekend. I won't delve into that now, but there are some other guys to get really excited about as they're kind of coming up through the pipeline, so to speak. But anyway, so again, like and follow the Facebook page. Or, you know, like and subscribe to the podcast, however you listen to. That way you're alerted to all the newest episodes. Hey, again, mentioned this at the top of the show. I got new shirts, and I appreciate everybody who's bought a shirt. I know I've sold several so far. And again, all the proceeds go to support the show. And as well as we're going to do a little bit of a donation to a, a nonprofit organization somewhere. That's good to be yet to be seen, but you'll know. So if you're interested, please reach out to me at onward to victory podcast at gmail.com or jump over to the Facebook page and send me a message. I'll send you a catalog and we can handle all the payment stuff and all that. But again, if you want to help spread the word about the show while also helping a good cause, again, consider buying one of the shirts or perhaps one of the coffee mugs, whatever you would like to do. So thank you. All right, uh, speaking of thank yous, again, thank you to Mike Finan, my pal from Rutherford, New Jersey, who is sponsoring this episode of the show. 
As always, a special thank you to Joseph Rakish, whose song, Knut Rockney, serves as the theme song to the show. So give it a spin, give it a listen. He's on pretty much every major way you can listen to music. YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes. Again, go support Joseph and his music. All right, well, that'll about wrap this up, episode 43, about the indomitable Tommy Yar. I hope you, again, enjoyed it. Again, please interact with the show however it is that you'd like. I'd love to hear from each and every one of you. Tell me if you enjoyed this episode of the show. Like I said, I really enjoyed putting this one, episode 43, together. And I tell you what, don't look now. We have four months until the college football season kicks off. And man, I'm just chomping at the bit. Well, I'll sign off. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I'm your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish. (laughs) 